Hi, and welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast. My name is Isabel Ross, and I'm the coach at Peak Endurance Coaching. Episode 50, and it feels like such a milestone saying that, and I'm so excited. I'm so happy. Um, Anyway, yes, episode 50 is an interview with Christy Ashwandon about her book, Good To Go, How To Eat, Sleep and Rest Like A Champion. I don't know if you saw a while back I posted a picture of myself uh, reading this book because it is such an awesome book. And I thought, well, I'm going to contact Christy and see if she would be willing to do an interview. And she was, which was fantastic. Um, And in this book, which, as I've said, I really enjoyed reading, Christy looks at all the different modes of recovery and sees whether the science backs them up as valid means to recover. Um, And I'm sure we all want to know because who wants to be wasting time? She also tries out many of them, which I find fascinating as I could relate them so much better to myself when she talked about how she actually did them rather than just reading about, you know, them in a scientific way. I highly recommend this book if you are serious about recovery. And of course, you should be because um, recovery is when you get the gains from your training. So it is a very important element of your training. So are injuries ruining your enjoyment of running and or, and or hindering your performance? There is nothing worse than feeling aches and pains when you go out for a run, especially when running is normally your de-stressor or your way of socialising. And when you can't run, this can really make you feel not the best about everything. So go to um, health and high performance. They can help you utilising the latest in technology and with a wealth of experience. The team there can assist you with all your running, injury and performance needs. So they don't just help with dealing with injuries, but they help you get to a greater performance level. So to get back to your enjoying your running and achieving the results you're capable of, head to www.healthhp dot com dot au backslash run i'll get it right one day anyway i hope you enjoy the episode 50 i'll say it again with christy as we talk about her book and i hope you get a lot out of it just like i did hi christy and welcome to the peak endurance podcast hi happy to be here so um, I've just told my listeners a little bit about you, but can you, in your own words, tell them a bit about yourself, your running background, and how you became interested in the science of recovery? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess you could say I've been a lifelong athlete. I started running when I was in high school, ran for the cross-country and track team, went on to run at my university. Um, and then uh, while, I was at, while I was at college, I actually got hurt, and so I started cycling for recovery and sort of rehabilitation, and then I got really into cycling, quit running competitively for a while, and started cycling instead, and in the meantime, I learned to cross-country ski, and I started doing that, and so after college, I bike raced pretty seriously for a few years, Uh, then I went to grad school, and then I decided I wanted to pursue cross-country skiing, and so I did that um, for quite a few years, traveling all over the world, uh, competing on Team Rossignol. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and so how did you become interested in, in recovery? Yeah. So there's this saying um, among authors and among writers that you should write the book that you want to read. And I would say that Good to Go is the book I wish I had had when I was yeah. starting out and earlier in my career. Um, looking back on my athletic career, I realized that recovery was the one thing that really took me most of my career to finally understand and to 
to really start to, um, you know, get right. And I think that it was something that really limited my performance a lot of those years because I was really of the mindset that, you know, you wanted to do more and train harder and train more. Um, And so it was something that I just recognized as being crucially important. And then in my career, my profession as a journalist, um, I've been doing a lot of research on sports science. And I started to see that there was a lot more attention being paid to recovery. And the other thing that happened, this is more recent, probably in the last decade or so, is that there's really been a marketing push on recovery. And so recovery has become something that's really just the subject of kind of this relentless push for products and services and things like that, which, yeah, on the one hand, it's great that, that people are being sort of educated and forced to think more about recovery. On the other hand, it turns out that a lot of these products and things are bogus or they're sort of overhyped. And so the book was really my attempt to interrogate the evidence here and see, you know, what's good and what's not, what you really need to do, what's known and, and what isn't. Yeah, no, well, I'm, I'm certainly glad you've written the book too. And, and I could have done with that a long time ago, back in my mountain biking days. Um, now, I thought we'd go quickly through the chapters and get it so that the listeners can get a sort of small thumbnail of each recovery element that you covered. So the first chapter looks at beer as a recovery drink. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I liked it that, that the results that you, you got from your small test was that at first that women, it's, it's good for recovery, yeah. but, uh, but obviously that isn't really the case. So can you tell us what you find out about beer as a recovery tool? Because certainly ultra runners do love to have a beer at the finish line. Oh yeah. So. <laughs> and I certainly do. And I, I still do. Um, I chose to, to begin the book with this chapter and with this little experiment that I did looking at beer and recovery um, because I thought it was a really good opportunity to show people, really walk them through some of the the problems and shortcomings of the the studies that are being used, you know, to market things to sign mm. or to to athletes. And the issue here, you know, so this was a really simple question. It would seem that we had, which was, you know, is beer good or bad for recovery? You know, basically the question was, if I drink a beer after my hard workout, am I ruining my recovery? That's kind of what athletes want to know, right? Yeah. And so this seems like a really simple question, but it turns out that it's actually quite complicated and very difficult to get a definitive answer, particularly from one study. And so the first problem with our study was that it was very small. We had only 10 people, um, which sounds like ridiculously small if you're used to, you know, looking at clinical trials and things like this as I am in my other work. But it turns out that in sports science, uh, that studies of this size are actually quite typical. And that's a problem because, um, you know, very small studies like this just don't usually produce very reliable results. So that's one problem. But the other problem is, okay, what do we mean by recovery? And how are we going to measure it? And it turns out that, you know, the answer you get is extremely reliant on the methodology and, you know, the measures that you decide to use, the way you go about doing those measurements, all these little decisions that you have to make as a researcher that, you know, each one in and of themselves may not seem that important, but put them all together and they can really have a huge influence on the results that you get. Yeah, yeah. So um, so ultimately through the, you find that beer is not good for recovery and also that you need much bigger sample sizes for, for testing really, don't you? 
Yeah, and I think, you know, we're, we're really one of the takeaways here. So there was other research. My little study was not the only thing yes. that had ever been done on beer. Uh, but a lot of the other research was done on these scenarios that weren't the scenario I was interested in, which was having one beer, maybe two after a workout. You know, they were giving these rugby players like six or seven beers, which yeah. is something like, you know, I will never do that in one sitting. Um, but it, it turns out it looks as though um, sort of common sense prevails here that a little bit of beer, a little bit of alcohol is probably no big deal. Uh, a lot is not good for you. But I think mm. one of the other takeaways is that we're so so often looking for something to have this huge effect. And it turns out that, um, you know, one of the effects that beer and alcohol may have is if they're uh, disrupting your sleep because sleep is extremely important for yeah. recovery. Uh, but in terms of beer being like the magic recovery elixir or something that's just absolutely going to wreck you, it just isn't the case in moderate amounts. It's sort of a, you know, it, it whatever effect it has is probably quite small and difficult to measure. Yeah, fair enough. All right, now yeah. the, next, the next chapter talks about hydration and the use of electrolytes, such as, you know, those hydration drinks like Gatorade and those sorts of things. And there's been a big marketing push for all those sorts of drinks and everyone feels obligated to, to drink them. Can you tell us what, what your findings on those were? Yeah, I was actually quite surprised um, by all of this because like everyone else I had heard and sort of been, you know, indoctrinated that I needed sports drinks and that electrolytes in particular were very important. Um, but it turns out that so much of what we, we know or are told about hydration is really marketing that's uh, stemming from the sports drink companies. And it turns out that our bodies are actually physiologically quite good at, at regulating things and dealing with a little bit of fluid loss during exercise. And so, yeah, the takeaway here is not that it's not important to drink when you're thirsty and to stay hydrated and all of that, but there's this idea that's kind of been um, put out by these companies that this is a really, really complex and complicated thing and you need to have these electrolytes in the exact perfect amount and, you know, you need a, a sweat monitor to make sure you're drinking mm -hmm. the precise amount of water. And it, it turns out that your body actually does quite well um, without all of this. And in fact, this is the extent to which um, at this point in time, so as I was researching the book, I tried very hard. I, I looked everywhere I could to find an example of an athlete dying of dehydration on a sports field or in a marathon or some sort of endurance event like this. And I couldn't find a single instance. What I did find were multiple, multiple cases of people dying during marathons in particular, but also during football practices, things like this, from drinking too much water, from overhydrating. Yeah. And it turns out when you do this, you basically dilute your blood. You don't have enough salt. It's a little bit complicated. But you could basically water intoxication, drink yourself to death. And this is quite a terrible problem given that, you know, this, this was really stemming from the marketing. You know, we didn't have people dying of this 30 years ago before people were drinking these sports drinks. And so, um, again, the takeaway is not that you shouldn't drink water or have fluids available during or after exercise, but that really thirst is a perfectly fine indicator. They're going to tell you that it's not, but when you look at the physiology, that is a perfectly reasonable and probably much better way to regulate hydration. And we've sort of turned it into something far more complex than it needs to be. Yeah, sometimes it seems so complicated on oh, you need to drink this many meals per hour and trying to do those calculations while you're running just seems a bit crazy. So I think, yeah, basing it on thirst sounds so much easier. 
It, it is. And, you know, this whole, all of the stuff about electrolytes, electrolytes, that's just a, you know, scientific name for salts. And we're getting these things in the food that we eat. Exactly. So it's ridiculous to think that you need to salt your water. You can eat something and, and you'll be fine. Yeah, which leads us on to the next chapter about fuel for recovery. Now, I've always yeah. been a big proponent of, you know, ensuring people eat within the window of opportunity. Is that, have you found that that's actually really necessary? Yeah, it turns out I have been taught the same thing and it was so crucial that you yeah. eat something right after the workout or you're going to miss this window. And once the window's closed, you know, you're really missing out. Well, it. it turns out, and I just want to be clear, this wasn't something that, um, you know, I don't think originally researchers set out to like sell their product or something with this, but some early studies just as a relic of the way they were done made it look like the timing was really important. But as they continued to study this and do more studies, look at this in different ways, what really became clear was that it wasn't, you know, some short window when the nutrition needed to be consumed, but it was more that you were consuming those things to begin with. And so it's not so much that you have to have those carbs and some protein within 30 minutes. It's that you need to have them at some point. And in most cases, it's perfectly fine to wait until the next meal to get those or to, you know, get back home or whatever you need to do this this idea that you have to have something just immediately just isn't supported by the science and you know the one exception to that might be um, if you're in a, a situation where you are performing again and again in short order so you're you're doing some sort of track meet or some sort of thing where you have an event and then you have a short period of rest and then another event in these cases it might be important to hit that window but again you know if you've fueled up enough for that it, it maybe okay to wait until after the event too yeah and and that's good to know and, and what i'm hearing in regards to the electrolytes and the and the food is that the body is a pretty pretty good at you know adapting and 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 helping you recover anyway yeah, that's exactly right. And I think one of the big takeaways, you know, I go into far more detail about this in the book and yeah. the science and it, the mechanisms of how this works. But I think one of the most important takeaways for me as I was researching this book was that we've really been taught that our bodies are these extremely delicate things and everything has to be in perfect balance. And if you can just get everything down to the, you know, exact, um, you know, milligram of nutrition and, and electrolytes and exact millimeter of, of uh, hydration fuel and all that, that things will be perfect. And that's how you reach optimal performance. But it turns out that this is just not, we're really putting our energy in the wrong spot. Our bodies are very mm -hmm. adaptable. Um, we've, we have, evolved to be able to adapt to changing environmental conditions and and all of this so we just don't need to sweat the small stuff quite, quite as much yeah which is so good to know um, now also the next chapter then it goes on for more recovery and, and I personally have always been anti-icing as certainly for myself no. I always felt it encourages injury so am I was mm -hmm. that correct <laughs> Yeah, so um, this whole chapter is all about icing and, and cold therapy and whatnot. And it's so interesting. It turns out that uh, I, this, is, this is the one, one of the very few things that I looked into that was actually not only help, not helpful, but 
actually harmful. Yeah. Um, the studies, the best studies, the best research that we have now actually suggests that, that cryotherapy, cold therapy, icing actually can impair recovery in many cases. What you're doing is you're basically slowing circulation to the site of injury, and that means you're slowing recovery or slowing healing. And so although it might seem great to reduce inflammation, inflammation is your body's healing process. Um, it's part of the way that you get fitter, faster, stronger in response to exercise and training is, you know, you create this little micro damage that your body then fixes and sort of reinforces yourself to become stronger. And so when you ice, you actually slow this down. And so rather than speeding healing, you're, you're actually slowing it. Yeah. And once again, it, it sounds like we're trying to interfere with the, the body's own adaptions here, kind of speed it up when if we just let the body do its own work things might be better. That's right. I mean, I think another really important lesson from my book is that trust your body, not just trust it, but learn to read it. You need yeah. to learn to read the signals that it's giving you, whether it's thirst or fatigue or hunger or whatnot. Like those are actually really good signals. And if you can learn to really pay attention to them and understand um, the nuances of what they're telling you, it's far better than some, you know, company telling you with, with a chart or some yeah. sort of product, what you need. Yeah, no, very interesting. Now, before COVID, I, you know, I was able to go to the gym and I used to use the infrared sauna at my gym as I thought it was good for recovery. Was I correct other than it being a good time for me to fall asleep? Yeah, well, I'll just say that sleep is the most powerful recovery <laughs> tool known to science. Exactly. So in that respect, yes. Um, but another thing that really came out of my research is that we have to really think about what do we mean when we talk about something aiding recovery? And at its most basic level, what, what we're really trying to do is help ourselves feel better, help ourselves relax, give our bodies um, sort of some downtime and some relaxation time so that it could make repairs and recover and, and recuperate. And so in that sense, I think infrared saunas are great. Yeah. Um, at the same time, there are all sorts of magical um, properties that are ascribed to them and, and all sorts of nonsensical claims. And none of these really panned out. You know, it's, it's not... Um, you know, changing your biochemistry or, or anything like that. But what it is doing is making you feel warm and feeling warm, feeling warm can feel really good. It does increase circulation and increasing circulation can be good for recovery. You know, you're speeding up um, healing a little bit by getting blood to the side and all of that. Now, this isn't going to be earth shattering or life changing. It's something that can, can be nice. And if you like it, fine. I would say that it's something that every athlete absolutely needs to do. Yeah, that's good. All right. So and a lot of ultrarunners swear by massage for recovery. Is, mm -hmm. is massage important? So that's a really great question. I think it really depends on how you're, you're framing, you know, what, what are you considering essential? Um, I would say that massage is probably the most popular recovery method among pro athletes of every stripe. It feels really good. Um, it does sort of help you to build this body awareness. So if mm. I've done a hard workout and I get a massage, that gives me a chance to really check in with my body. And I find, oh my gosh, my right calf is really sore. And I didn't realize that until right now. Okay. So now I'm aware that I've got the soreness there and I might 
behave accordingly. It's also an hour of lying there on a table, relaxing. I mean, to the extent that you can when you're getting a yes. massage, which is not always, you know, it's not always relax relaxing in every sense, but it's really a, a time to let go of all the other stresses in your life. And this is actually one of the most important things that's necessary for recovery. You know, when you are under a lot of life stress and running around doing things, you're not recovering. And so I think in some, in some ways, the biggest benefit for massage may just be checking out for an hour and doing nothing else, but like really thinking about how your body's feeling. Yeah. So what I'm get, hearing in regards to both the um, infrared sauna and, and the massage is it's just the more switching off. That's the important part of the recovery. So that's, that's also right. begs the question, what about meditation? I assume that would be very much the same then. Absolutely. Meditation is great. And again, it goes back to, yeah, some people really love meditation. They're, they find it easy to do. It can be a fantastic method for recovery because it's really, you know, again, it goes back to this idea, what is recovery? It's rested relaxation. And meditation is a way of practicing that. Now, some people um, just don't like meditation or they find it hard or they find it stressful to get into that. And like, I think another lesson here is that your recovery methods and your recovery tools should not become their own sense source of stress. And so mm. if you're saying, okay, I've got to recover and I have to recover perfectly, or I have to meditate and I have to meditate perfectly. And if I'm not- And get stressed out about doing that. Yeah. yeah. So meditation is great. I think everyone should try it. And I think it's something that most people can learn to do. But again, I don't think that there's some optimal way to do it. The, the real benefit here and the goal should be just taking some time to really relax and to um, you know move inward a little bit and let go of those life stresses, let go of all the hustle and bustle and give your body some time to recuperate. Yeah, and um, I mean, I find meditation difficult to do, but when you, when you hit that sweet yeah. spot, that's, that's true. I've read that you like um, flotation tanks, that you find those worthwhile. Can you tell the listeners yeah, about yeah. Sure. I was really, this was, uh, there were a few things. I, I tried out so many things. I tried yeah. out millions of things for this book. Uh, but flotation tank was one of the things that I said, well, I would never do this normally. And I was very apprehensive about it. But I felt like it was something I needed to do just because it's become so popular and there's a lot of hype around it. So I decided to go try it out and I was really nervous about it, but it turned out I really, really liked it. And I like to think of it as forced meditation um, yeah. because you're just, you're, you're basically lying in this tank of water. It's, it's very shallow, but also very salty. So your body's very buoyant. And so it's just a method of extreme relaxation, I guess. And I found it very therapeutic. For me, it was really a nice way of taking time to just really relax and meditate in a way that didn't require a lot of work or a lot of effort on my part. So I really like that. Now at the same time, this can be expensive. You have to go somewhere. So it's not something that you can necessarily do on a daily basis, but it was something that I found, you know, was, was really helpful for me and something I enjoyed. Um, but again, I think, you know, there are some people that try it and they don't like it. And it's certainly not something that I would say, this is absolutely the key to recovery and you need to do this. Um, I think my message here is that this is one way to you know, pursue that rested relaxation. And if it's something that works for you and you have access to, then great. If it isn't, don't sweat it. Yeah. You know, I, I certainly like the sound of it and, and we've got one near my gym, so I might give it a try once all the things cool. open up again. You know, for myself, I've always believed that sleep is the best form of recovery. 
Um, and you've already sort of spoke, touched on that now. And the science just support this belief? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's hands down the most powerful recovery tool that science has ever identified. Nothing else comes close. And I think, you know, if there's one thing that people were to focus on, sleep would, would be it. And, you know, it's interesting because I think it's something that everyone knows about. We all do it. Everyone sleeps, right? But it's something yeah. that people find really difficult to master. And what I've noticed, and particularly in talking to people after the book came out and hearing their stories and their struggles, is that so many people really, the mistake that they make is that they fail to prioritize it. And so they know that sleep's important, but they, you know, they get, get a busy life, they have a busy day. And so instead of going to bed at 10 o'clock, like they know they should, if they need, if they're going to get enough sleep, they go to bed at, you know, 11 or midnight or 1am because they get busy doing things. Maybe they're checking their email or something really toxic like that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just something that you just have to be hard and fast about it. And you have to build these sleep habits and, and the sleeping itself and the habits around it are actually quite simple. It's just that I think sometimes we prefer the, the more complicated uh, solution or the thing we can buy, the app, the product, when really, you know, the best and most powerful tool is something that's staring us in the face and it's something simple and accessible to everyone. And free. Free, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So when, when yeah. we say that sleep is the best recovery, sort of how long, is it, is it like the eight hours or is there even a magic number? I would say there is not a magic number. I mean, I think seven is probably the minimum that you want to be aiming for. Um, every person's a little bit different, different circumstances too. Uh, if you've been training really hard, you probably need more sleep. On the other hand, sometimes when you're training very hard, it can be a little bit harder to yeah, get to sleep. You know, yeah. you kind of really buzz, particularly after an event or even before an event. Yeah. What about naps, afternoon naps? Um, maybe those are circumstances yeah, oh, I was just going to say, those are, those are circumstances where you might want to plan to take a nap and to supplement the sleep in other ways yeah. like that. Um, yeah, the best way to figure out how much you personally need is to just take an extended period of time. And it really requires more than a week. So this isn't easy, but if you can take a two-week vacation or even a week and just, you know, go to bed and wake up without an alarm multiple times, after a while, it will take your body a little bit of time to sort of catch up if you've been sleep deprived going into this, but you'll start to get a sense of how much your body, um, you know, sleeps if left to its own devices. I mean, ideally, the best thing to do would be to uh, not wake up with an alarm. And so you're waking up when your body's ready. Um, this isn't always practical in a lot of circumstances. It's impossible. And I understand that. Um, but I think seven or eight, probably eight hours is a good rule of thumb. But again, it's circumstantial and there's, there's no one right answer. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, eight hours of sleep doesn't necessarily mean eight hours in bed because it takes time to fall asleep and we have moments of wakefulness. So it can be even longer right. to actually be yeah. in bed. Yeah. Now, the next chapter talks about supplements. Um, a lot of ultra runners or runners in general or athletes like to think that they can, um, you know, fix their diet with supplements or, or you know, improve their performance with supplements. Is, is that true? Uh, it's total nonsense, actually. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think you could um, summarize the entire chapter about supplements in one word, and that is don't. There's just <laughs> absolutely no compelling reason for particularly for athletes to be taking supplements. I mean, the one exception would be um, in some circumstances, 
uh, particularly among women who are of menstrual age and menstruating, um, there are times when iron supplements may be important, particularly for athletes who are training at altitude. It's always better though, and, and with iron in particular, to get this from food. Um, yes. You know, a nice red steak is going to be easier for your body to absorb um, than a supplement. Of course, not everyone eats meat, and I think that that's perfectly fine. There are vegetable sources too, but really finding something that your body could need. But there are a couple of other things here that are at play, and one is that um, there's this idea that our diets are all terrible and we, we might be deficient in things, but you know, particularly with athletes who are training a lot, that means they're eating a lot of food too. Mm. Like the chances that you are low on some particular nutrient are almost nil. If you're eating a lot of food and you're an athlete and and consuming the, the kind of calories you're going to need um, for your exercise. Um, the other thing is that these supplements are, we think that we can look at the label and know whether it's a good supplement or a bad supplement, but there have been so many problems and this has been perpetually the case for years and years. And I don't know what it's like in your country, but here in the US, there's the regulation on this stuff is very, very loose. It's almost non-existent. And we yeah. have multiple instances. I mean, almost every day I get a press release um, about a supplement that's been found to contain uh, you know, heavy metal, uh, an undeclared pharmaceutical, something that should not be there. And so it's just very, very difficult to know what you're getting. And this isn't just a problem with, with you know, bad actors and bad companies. Um, so much of this stuff is, is produced and manufactured overseas. There are problems with tainting and with, with things, um, you know, in the factory uh, getting tainted with other things. And, and particularly if you are an athlete who is subject to drug testing, you absolutely want to avoid supplements because we have so many cases of athletes yes. testing positive. So just, there's just no upside and there are so many downsides and there, are, you know, you're basically throwing your money away too, because these things are expensive and, a lot of times and then you end up just having expensive way, don't you? Exactly. I was just <laughs> going to say that. Yeah, you get this really expensive key. Yeah, yeah. Um, now we then go on to overtraining syndrome. Is um, is that what? So there's you know chronic fatigue and those sorts of things. Is that what overtraining can lead to? And you hear about you know adrenal fatigue and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, adrenal fatigue. I don't discuss that particular term in the no. book. Um, but my understanding of that is that it's it's really a descriptive term. It's not a physiological term. Yes. And there are definitely a lot of sort of um, bogus uh, cures and things that are being peddled for these things. But overtraining syndrome is basically um, when you are doing more exercise and, and subjecting your body to more stress and strain than it can recover from. And so there's actually a movement now among some researchers to call it by another term, which is that... Um, you know, under recovery syndrome. Yeah. And so the idea here is that it's not that you're, it's not the training that's the problem, it's the recovery. And so I even had one researcher tell me that, you know, they're not even sure that, that you know, it's possible to, that it's about overtraining, it's really about under recovery. And so I think this is a really good guiding principle though, because you can only benefit from the training that you are adapting to and that you're recovering from. And so there's this idea out there that more is better, but that's really the, the backwards way of looking at it because what you want to do is not the most absolute most training that you can you want to do the least amount of training possible to get the results that you want 
And so because, you know, you don't want to unnecessarily strain your body and more strain and more stress is not good. You want, you want to keep that as low as possible. And so the idea here is really to be paying attention. This goes back to my earlier point about learning to read your body and understand what fatigue is feeling like. And it's absolutely fine to be fatigued. I mean, that's, if you're training hard, you will be fatigued and that's a good sign. Um, but it's different when you are in, you know, really hard training block at training camp and you're really tired versus feeling that way all the time. And when you are having periods where you are just not uh, performing um, at normal, you're having extended periods of fatigue. These are signs that you're overtraining. And the, the thing about overtraining is it's very difficult to come back from. And it's not something where, you know, you're really, really fit and all of a sudden you're overtrained and then you can just back off a little bit and go back to being fit. Once you, you cross over that line into overtraining, you really have to go back to square one. There's, there's no getting back to that that super fit stage from there because your body is just basically exhausted and you have to start over. And this is where so many athletes get into trouble because, you know, they really toy with that line, they go over it and then they convince themselves that, okay, maybe if they do need to take a little rest, they will, but they don't give themselves enough. And they just, uh, yeah, they're in a hole and they keep digging. And when you're in that hole, what you need to do is crawl out and start over. Yeah, and sometimes I find that athletes think, well, if they're not performing well, what they need to do is train harder and more, when in actual right. fact, yeah, they probably need to rest more. Exactly, exactly, yes. Yeah, so so rest, rest, and what I'm, I keep hearing, and as I noticed when I was reading, we keep coming back to how important rest is as recovery. Yeah. Yeah, so now chapter 10 is called the magic metric. Can you explain to the listeners yeah. what you meant by that? Yeah, so this is all about data and sort of the, the search for some metric that will be a, the perfect measure of recovery. Every athlete wants to be able to just wake up in the morning and look at the watch on their wrist or take some measurement that will tell them, yes, you're recovered or no, you're yeah. not, or this is how recovered you are. And it turns out that um, we don't really have a thing like that. We don't have something that you can measure in a number, but we do have something that's actually remarkably good at um, measuring and sort of signaling recovery, and that is mood, which I think was kind of surprising to me. You know, we don't think of mood as something that's so squishy. It doesn't seem that scientific or that no. quantitative, but it turns out that when your body is really exhausted and, and you know, you're over the line like that, it suppresses your mood, and this manifests a little bit differently in every person. Some people get really, really testy or moody. Some people get really dark and depressed, but, but it, it really does manifest in how people are feeling, and often what happens is the, the person, you know, this athlete who is overtraining, first of all, they're, they're driven enough to be overtraining in the first place, and so they find themselves in a bad mood. They no longer are feeling up to training, they don't really want to train. And so instead of saying, wow, I really don't feel like training, this might be my body telling me I need a break. What they say is, wow, I'm really sucky. This is terrible. Yeah. I need to work harder. You know, they, they really turn it around. And that again, it's they're in that hole and they're digging, digging, digging instead of stopping to assess what's going on and assess the situation and, and figure out the best way out. And also having a coach help with this to keep a, an athlete from doing too much and relying too much on the numbers? Yeah, I think so. And I'm not anti-number. I mean, I'm a data journalist. I love yeah. data. I love numbers. And I, I actually went into this really thinking that I would find something. 
But I think, and I think that it's fine to track different things and to pay attention. But the danger here is that if you start sort of offloading this task of reading your body and and paying yeah. attention to its signals to numbers, what ends up happening is you lose sight of what your body's really telling you. And those numbers are so often wrong. Yeah. And so how about the watches which tell you how, you know, how many hours of recovery you need? How accurate are those? Uh, not very. I mean, I, I, I don't want to completely dismiss them out of hand. It's yeah. information, but I think that athletes really need to develop their own sense of this. And so um, you know, I tried out some different sport watches while I was working on the book. And what I found is that they didn't always agree on this. And what I would find so often is that they would, I would really notice when they were wildly off. Um, so I'll just give you an example. Last week I did a two and a half hour trail run and I had my longest trail run of that sort up till then was, I mean, probably a little more than half as far. I finished that run and I was, I was, trash i was really tired and my sport watch said oh great you're going to be ready to go tomorrow everything's fine <laughs> just thought what you know i was at high altitude up in the mountains and um you know so do i believe the watch or do i believe how i feel and what i know which is that this is a pretty hard run it was uh rocky and you know i was feeling a little bit beat up after that and so yeah. i took the next day off and then the day after that you know i went for a spin on my bike i didn't go out and do a hard training run. And, and those are things that, you know, I, it was just a no brainer for me to trust my own intuition over what the watch was telling me. Yeah. I think it's so important to, to listen to the body and, and really heed what it's saying rather than just relying on, on external sources like watches and that sort of thing. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I find it interesting in chapter 11, the researchers found that ibuprofen doesn't actually help with inflammation when racing, but, runners continue to use it regardless and even though it's actually probably bad for their body. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and it's interesting too because there's this idea that, oh, you want this anti-inflammatory because you don't want inflammation when you're up. This is particularly true among ultramarathon runners. But it turns out that ibuprofen is really hard on your body when you're doing, a, like doing something like an ultramarathon where you're in an extended period of stress with your body this is really not a good thing to do. It can, it looks like it may increase your chance of getting rhabdomyolysis, which can be a really dangerous condition, um, which is happening when your muscles mm. getting broken down when you're doing extended endurance exercise. Um, but it also doesn't seem to be doing the thing that people think it's doing, which is reducing their the inflammation in their body. Um, and in fact, this goes back to the thing we were talking about with icing. And that is that, you know, it, best case scenario, if it is reducing the inflammation and in, say your knee or your ankle or wherever it is that you might be also thinking that you're going to be staving off, you know, this pain that you might be getting, what's really happening is you're extending the injury a little bit and you're preventing um, the normal healing that's going to be happening. And so um, it's just not something that you should be taking during exercise for the most part, usually. And it's something that, you know, you should take it very judiciously and you should take it for pain relief. It's not going to, to um, speed the healing of your injuries. We have some pretty good evidence now that for sprains and things like that, it may actually um, impede healing a little bit, not to an extent where um, you'd never want to take it for pain, but you really want to take it just for the controlling of the pain, not with this idea that you're somehow helping the healing process yeah and that is that's so good to know and especially because it can be quite bad for the body 
Um, well, yeah. that's basically the the book in a nutshell. Obviously, I, I it's I yeah. um, I read. A, Bought the book on a recommendation from a friend and um, read it quite quickly because I absolutely loved it. And I actually posted a picture at one point um, of me reading it, and a lot of people responded saying that they loved the book too. So that's why I thought it'd be oh, a great interview. To hear that. Yeah. So um, thank you so much for writing this book because it's such an important element of training is recovery because, like you said, that's when you actually um, improve from your training. So thank you for writing that's that. Right. Yeah. And um, where can uh, my listeners find out more about you or connect with you or find out more about your book? Sure. Um, so obviously you can read my book to hear all about that. Uh, I've got a website for the book, which is goodtogobook.com, www.goodtogobook.com. Uh, my website is my, my name, christyoshwanden.com. Um, you can also find me on Twitter. Uh, I am Craig Crest, that's C-R-A-G-C-R-E-S-T. It's Craig as in like mountain crag, um, Crest. It's actually, the handle is named after my favorite trail run here in Colorado. Oh, okay. um, that's what you do when you have a really long name like me. So you can find <laughs> me there on Twitter. Uh, I've on Instagram at the same thing. And I also have, this is um, a different thing, but I also have a podcast called Emerging Form, which is not about sport at all. It's about creativity. Uh, but it's interesting to see how often that there's overlap there. And in yes, fact, we I have some so. guests coming up that are athletes that we'll be talking to. So, Excellent. All right. Well, I'll put all of those um, links in the show notes if people want to go to those. So thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks. So what did you think? A big takeaway for me from this interview was that the most efficacious forms of recovery involve switching the brain off and resting. Something that, as I know from experience, is easier said than done. Also, she supported my belief that sleep is the best form of recovery available to athletes. Once again, easier said than done, as I well know. I don't know about you, but I often have um, trouble not getting to sleep, but staying asleep. I wake up at that magic two o'clock and can't seem to get back to sleep. Anyway, let's all try to get more sleep as I'm sure all of our running will most certainly improve. Christy's contact details are in the show notes. And let me know your thoughts on the podcast in the, either in the comments about this interview on the podcast Instagram page or by DM or email. And thank you so much for supporting my podcast. I really appreciate the people who take the couple of minutes out of their day to get onto Apple Podcasts or their preferred podcast player to rate and review me. I read all of my reviews and they sure do inspire me to keep working hard on this podcast. Bexter says, I've just started listening. I'm absolutely loving listening to the variety of topics covered. Great to tune into on the long runs. I too love coffee. Ah, a fellow coffee lover. I don't know if I could run without coffee, to be honest. Thanks so much for your feedback, Bexter. Next interview is uh, next week's interview I should say is with Sam Suk who talks about how mindset and self-talk can affect healing and injury rehabilitation very interesting stuff so tune in for that one as um, I'm sure you'll get a, a lot out of it as, as I always say and and I did too I find it really interested interesting um, I am getting so excited about racing again I just that's you know really motivates me at the moment and I hope you're feeling the same. If you are, email me isabel at peakendurancecoaching.com.au to organise an individualised training plan. 
Have a great week of training and getting out and enjoying this beautiful winter weather that we are having. We are so lucky. And um, I hope you are having a great time with your training and with catching up with friends and family now that we can do that a little bit more.